You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected author debriefings. So we're joined today by P.W. Singer, a strategist and senior fellow at the New America Foundation and a contributing editor at Popular Science. He has been named by the Smithsonian Institution National Portrait Gallery as one of the 100 leading innovators in the nation, by Defense News as one of the 100 most influential people in defense issues, by analytical social media data analysis as one of the 10 most influential voices in the world on cybersecurity, and by foreign policy to their top 100 global thinkers list. Described by the Wall Street Journal as the premier futurist in the national security environment, Dr. Singer, who has his PhD in government from Harvard, is considered one of the world's leading experts on changes in 21st century warfare. He has consulted for the U.S. military, Defense Intelligence Agency, and FBI, as well as advised a range of entertainment programs, including for Warner Brothers, DreamWorks, Universal, HBO, Discovery, History Channel, and the video game series Call of Duty, the best-selling entertainment project in history. He served as the coordinator of the Obama 08 Campaign's Defense Policy Task Force and was named by the president to the U.S. military's Transformation Advisory Group. He has provided commentary on security issues for nearly every major TV and radio outlet, including ABC, Al Jazeera, BBC, CBS, CNN, Fox, NPR, and NBC Today Show. In addition to his work on conflict issues, Singer is a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Communications and Information Policy. His first book, Corporate Warriors, The Rise of the Privatized Military Industry, pioneered the study of new industry of private companies providing military services for hire, an issue that soon became important with the use and abuse of these companies in Iraq. Children at War, his second book, was the first to comprehensively explore the tragic rise of child soldier groups and was recognized by the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Book of the Year Award. Singer served as a consultant on the issue to the United States Marine Corps, and the recommendations in his book consult- resulted in changes in the UN peacekeeping training program. 2009's Wired for War examined the implications of robotics and other technologies for war, politics, ethics, and law in the 21st century. It was named Nonfiction Book of the Year by the Financial Times and featured at venues as diverse as all three U.S. military academies, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, TED, and the Royal Court of the UAE. The book was made an official reading of the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, U.S. Army, and Royal Australian Navy. 
His fourth book, Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know, explores the key questions we all face in the cyber age. It was described by the chairman of Google as an essential read and by the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO as the most approachable and readable book ever written on the cyber world. The book has been added to the U.S. Navy and U.S. Army professional reading list and featured at venues like the Microsoft CEO Summit and South by Southwest Festival. And finally, his newest book, Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war, which came out June of 2015, is Dr. Singer's debut novel. It melds nonfiction-style research on emerging trends in technology with a fictional exploration of what the future of war at sea, on land, in the air, space, and cyberspace will be like in the future. Prior to his current position, the New America Foundation, Dr. Singer was a founding director of the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence at the Brookings Institution. He was the youngest scholar named senior fellow in Brookings' 99-year history. Prior to that, he was a founding director of the project on U.S. policy toward the Islamic world, where he was the originator, or sorry, question, the organizer of the U.S. Islamic World Forum, a global leaders conference. He has also worked for the Office of Secretary of Defense and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. And from this resume, if you're expecting a grizzled seven-year-old man sitting in front of me, the most annoying thing about Dr. Singer is he's my age. Uh, so thank you for that. So thank you, Dr. Singer, for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Happy to join you. So I, I, before we get to Ghost Fleet, I'd like to start with some general topics of which you are you have some well-versed expertise. And robotics and drones is one of these, these broader topics. My background in science and technology, as people who have been listening to this podcast know, and when I think about science and technology, I constantly come back to the concept that all technology is dual use. Right? There's no technology that's made bad or made good. Uh, for me, nuclear weapons is my field. So nuclear power, nuclear energy, is something that could be great for mankind, of course, that it creates nuclear weapons. Um, this is something that we're seeing now more often with robots, with drones, with new technology. Can you talk a little bit about this dual-use nature? I, I think you hit it exactly right. The way I frame it is that um, every technology, whether it is a stone or a drone, to be rhyming here, has been used for both good and bad and been used by good and bad people. So if you think of you know stone, some caveman either first picked it up to build something with or to bash someone in the head with. Same thing, drones, we've uh, seen them used in warfare by uh, arguably good and bad guys. Uh, a great illustration right now would be the fighting in Iraq and Syria. Every single side in that multi-side conflict, whether it's the Syrian government, the Iraqi government, the Iranian government's uh, contribution into it, Hezbollah, ISIS, the United States, the Russians, they've all used drones. So too, the same technology has been used, um, you know, uh, for people are probably, someone's listening to this going to get it as a holiday gift. Right. Uh, we're seeing them be applied into industry, you know, and everything from farming to um, disaster relief. But oh, by the way, we've also seen use of them by criminals, by terrorists. So the technology is definitely dual use. I mean, one of my frustrations um, with the d discourse over this is that, you know, you'll see these news stories where it'll be about... Um, uh, you know, use of a drone in Nebraska for crop monitoring and the newspaper photo will be of a 
predator <laughs> firing a hellfire missile. Fire, right, yeah. yeah. The other part of it that's that where things get smashed together that I think um, the listeners of this podcast would particularly um, be attuned to is how we've um, when we talk about even though the the actual kinetic use of it, the the drone wars, the drone strikes, you know, it firing a hellfire missile. We too often smash together the overuse of it in a battlefield with the, I jokingly call it the not so covert use of it in the intelligence community right. world. So, you know, we combine together uh, the use of it when we're talking about in Afghanistan in support of U.S. troops on the ground versus a strike in Pakistan where, you know, you're trying to get a terrorist leader or something like that. The technology is the same. But the operations are very different in everything from the people involved to uh, how you authorize it to the rules of engagement. You name it. They are different. But, you know, we combine them together because guess what? It's the same technology. Well, and this is a little bit something we're making up as we go along. Because if you look at, and you've talked about this before, the unprecedented growth in the last decade or so of drone usage on the battlefield. Not just technologically how much more advanced some of these robotics and drones have become, but also number-wise, like the amount... Of, of drones on the battlefield is, is exponentially grown. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was a science fiction technology, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, and it became real. Uh, to, you know, put the numbers in comparison, we went into uh, Afghanistan in 2001 with uh, literally a handful of drones, uh, zero unmanned ground vehicles. None of them were armed at the time. Now in the U.S. military inventory, we have over 10,000 unmanned aerial systems, drones, many of them, of course, armed. And on the ground, we've got over 12,000 unmanned ground vehicles, little ground robotics that are used for surveillance, intelligence gathering. We're moving into using them for logistics. But of course, we're not the only players in the game anymore. There's 80 other countries that we've documented that are building, buying, using drones right now. And they range from the ones that, you know, you should expect, like a Russia, like a China, like a Israel, to, you know, uh, ones that you wouldn't normally think, but um, now that you have a trade in it. So, for example, uh, we documented how Nigeria bought a armed Chinese drone and was using it in the area around Boko Haram. And what was a really interesting experience about this is I was presenting to a group of um, U.S. Navy SEALs and they're like, what? And we're like, and we're like, no, actually, here it is. And they're like, are you sure? And we're like, no, here's the photo of it. And that's at the point. That's one of the things that's interesting in, in my work today is you can do so much through open source intelligence right. gathering. So essentially the way we were able to figure that out is um, one of the drones crashed <laughs> and someone tweeted about it. Amazing what, what you can do with Twitter at this point. Um, this may be an unanswerable question, uh, but how can we ensure the technology of the future is used in the correct way. How do we get R2-D2 and not Skynet? How do, <laughs> how do we prevent... I mean, I'm not talking about the singularity or, or drones becoming self-aware. I mean, how, how do we maintain... How do we keep ISIS from flying an armed drone in New York City? How do we... Is there a way? Again, maybe an unanswerable question. But I mean, there's so many different layers to what right. you're getting at here. There is, um, how do I try and keep the technology from getting in the hands of the bad guys? And, you know, that's... The same way you think of other technologies, um, you want to try and create rules and restrictions to make the trade uh, of, of dangerous things to bad people harder. 
Um, I think the difference between the story of like nuclear proliferation versus proliferation of drones is um, the barriers to entry are so low. Right. So it's not a matter of um, how do we keep ISIS from getting this. They've already used the technology. Now, they haven't used armed drones yet, but in terms of, you know, we've already got uh, battlefield footage that ISIS has taken of its own operations with a drone. Um, so well, it's I mean, more, you know, I, actually when you're thinking about the arming of it, weirdly we're in a place right now where it's more about how do I keep the explosive uh, from them versus the drone. And there was already a case of this um, a couple years ago. There was a gentleman, um, Rodwan Ferdeus, uh, who was, um, he became uh, radicalized, uh, not so ironically enough, he was so angry over our drone strikes in Pakistan, he then wanted to carry out his own drone strike. He wanted to try and recreate 9-11. His plan was, um, it's hard to hijack planes now, so his plan was to crash um, drones into uh, government buildings in Washington, D.C. The, the drones that he was able to get, um, they're about um, nine feet long, so not little tiny right. ones, pretty big. Um, Fortunately, he made the mistake of asking an FBI informant, where do I get C4 plastic explosives from? <laughs> so we're in the world already right. where it's easier to get the drone right. than it is to get the bomb. So you got that question of trying to, how do, how do I try and keep it out of bad people's hands? Then you have the question of how do I regulate it? So what are the, what are the rules that, you know, even when good guys are using it, how do we um, shape the rules so that, you know, we keep, uh, if you're talking about war intelligence, there's always going to be mistakes. There's always going to be differences of interpretations over what's right and wrong. That's why you have laws. Right. And we're, we're going through that right now with drones and everything from what should be the proper rules of engagement to here uh, in the U.S., you know, we're trying to regulate who can fly drones. Do you, be, do you need to be licensed to fly these right. things? Um, you know, we're licensed uh, to drive a car. What about a drone? Um, so you got all that going on. Then you got the, the Skynet question, which is the difference of this technology. And one of the things we play with in, in Ghost Fleet is what happens next? Right. So we've been thinking about the technology as us in charge of it, you know, someone flying a predator drone from afar. But they're increasingly able to do more and more on their own, take off and land on their own, including from aircraft Well, carriers. that was I was going to bring that up. That was a huge milestone moment. With a, the, probably the hardest thing to do with flying. Any Navy pilot will, will happily tell you yeah. that's the hardest thing for a human pilot to do. And uh, a drone's already done it, and it does it perfectly every time. Right. Um, so you, And it's not just that. It's moving into mission sets. So the Global Hawk, which is the replacement for the U-2 spy plane, um, you don't fly it with a joystick. Uh, it's basically a keyboard that you tell it what to do. You set waypoints. And, and, yeah. and then it goes off and does the mission. Um, to we're, there's ones testing now where they do target acquisition on their own. So we're moving. You know, we're not in the Terminator world yet, but we're definitely using more and more autonomous um, systems. And what's interesting is there's been this pushback movement against it. You know, everything from um, I know of at least three different uh, task forces within the Pentagon that are wrestling with. You know, should we move forward with autonomy or not? Um, there's a human rights campaign that's trying to stop it, too. There was a letter-writing campaign by over 2,000 scientists, some of the big names right. in the field, you know, Stephen Hawking, Elon right. Musk, saying, let's not go here. The challenge is we document in Ghost Fleet 21 different cases where we're already working on this technology right now. Everything from... Um, 
ones that work together as swarms to ones at sea that are basically motorboats uh, that hunt, they're robotic motorboats that hunt submarines right. on their own. These are not dream-up fanciful. These are the projects that are testing right now. So the point is all these things that are saying, um, you know, we shouldn't do this in general. Like, no, you're doing it in at least these 21 different cases. And the reason why you're doing it is the same thing why you know Volvo, Mercedes-Benz, Ford, Google are all building autonomous cars. People want to use it in some way, shape, or form. They think it'll save money. They think it'll make the job easier. Um, scientists want to push frontiers. So I'm less confident we're going to be able to stop this future. It's more about how do you, like with every other technology, shape it towards good ends. Well, and you've equated the revolution of robotic technology to the development of the atomic bomb, and you've even argued many. it's even bigger than that. And I think that, you know, what I look at historically is the conversations that happen after the development of the bomb, whether it was military strategists or out at RAND or other people. Do we need or have we already or do we need to really, really focus in on having that conversation about advanced technology today? I mean, about things like robotics and drones and cyber and human-machine interfaces and all these technologies that are on the cusp. And we're no longer in a situation where it takes 10 years for us to develop a technology. It might take 10 weeks now to go from drawing board to prototype. Uh, You know, does this need to be a broader national conversation than we're currently having? I mean, we're living through this right now. I mean, I think the, the parallel of, you know, be it the atomic bomb or I think another parallel is the steam engine or the computer is just simply it, the world is fundamentally uh, changed uh, by this invention that, you know, the world is different. And in many ways, if you were living before the atomic bomb, before the steam engine, before the printing press, before robotics, it's hard to imagine what the world would be like afterwards. And, and secondly, the technology is important in and of itself, but maybe more important is all the ripple effects that it has on everything from business to warfare to intelligence to law to ethics, and that you get all sorts of questions of you know things that are possible that you didn't imagine were possible before, but also things that are um, questions of what's proper, right. questions of right and wrong. And that's, I think, what we need to face up to. The, the scary parallel for me to the atomic bomb is that period um, immediately after it where you had the, the Dr. Strangelove style thinking, where you had like just a lot of really bad thinking that was quite dangerous. And you know, when we go back and, and look at the history of the Cold War, we were really lucky. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's that period of transition that, that's often the most dangerous. And I think there's a lot of parallels for us today to, to, you know, learn from that. Well, I mean, one of the things that concerns me is this concept of Moore's Law, the idea that technology is is, is advancing exponentially. It's not literally anymore. It, it's You brought up the steam engine, you brought up the nuclear weapons. The steam engine idea was conceived back in the third century, and it take, took till 1715 to get a workable version. Even the idea to create an atomic bomb is early 20th century stuff, and then it takes 40 years to develop it. Now, from idea to production is less than a year in some cases. It's, it, it's I'll give you a, a, a drones case, but it combines with another uh, cool slash key new technology, which is 3D printing. Um, so there was a group of university students in the UK who wanted to build a better drone than the entire British military had. So um, they designed a, a drone in their computer using a CAD program. 
Um, the drone is, uh, it's, it looks a little bit like a World War II era Spitfire, more aerodynamic than the drones that the, the Brits have right now, etc. They designed it in their computer, they printed out the parts with a 3D printer themselves, and then they flew the prototype in seven days. <laughs> Take their design right. to life cycle and compare it to things like, you know, the Joint Strike Fighter. Right. It's taken us years <laughs> and years. But again, they did it because they think it's neat and cool. There's darker examples that we've seen. Uh, so, for example, the um, most popular uh, police handcuffs in the world, someone popped online the design for the universal key to right. them. And now anyone with a 3D printer can make that. Uh, so, you know, huge possibilities with this, but also some scary things that will come out of it. Right. So can we shift to cyber for, for a second? We, we get the question all the time, and I'm not a cyber expert, but I, I have a decent background in it. And one of the questions I'm, I'm thinking about is things like the OPM hack, things like the Russian hacks that we've seen over time. Do you see this as probing for weaknesses for a major strike in the future, as some have argued, like the power grid or something else? Or are they picking us to death? Are they a little bit of economic gain here, a little bit of military technology gain there? Or is it a combination of both that we just not know yet? You know, the the challenge in cybersecurity is that we combine um, all sorts of different activities and actors, but if they're using the same technology, we lump them all together. So, you know, take, for example, if um, we were doing doing an intelligence kind of a security analysis of the threat to the museum, and we said, oh, my goodness, um, there's a group of uh, teenage pranksters outside with firecrackers. Mm -hmm. We said, oh, my goodness, there's a group of political protesters. They're wearing funny masks, and they're tossing smoke bombs. Oh, my goodness, there is a thief outside, uh, a mugger with, with a shotgun. Oh, my goodness, there's a terrorist uh, trying to plant a roadside bomb in front of the spy museum. Oh, my goodness, there's a spy trying to get in. There's you know, James Bond with his Walter PPK pistol. Oh, my goodness, there is a Russian tank driving down the street. Right. We would never say these are all one and the same threat and combine them together because they're using gunpowder. But if you gave all of those very different actors a computer, we'd lump them all together. So there's different um, threat campaigns that are happening out there. There's uh, regular old cyber crime. There's hacktivism, the political protest side. Um, There are people doing it for fun. So, for example, the CIA uh, director recently was hacked, not by China, but by a group of teenagers who, you know, were just doing it for, you know, basically a really dumb uh, prank that got them a lot of attention. Um, And we'll get them in trouble soon. Um, Then we have the intellectual property theft campaign where uh, essentially it's mostly been linked back to China. They're stealing business secrets, so they're targeting everything from the makers of jet fighters to soft drink companies. Um, And that's about gaining economic gain. And then you have the, I'm going after government targets and I'm trying to either steal secrets of um, government value. So the OPM breach, that was just, that was classic espionage. Right. It, was, it was no different than uh, a KGB agent physically breaking in and trying to pull people's individual records. The difference was we were so horrible in our own security that um, essentially the, they were able to do it through cyber means. And then when it's through cyber means, you can pull out not just what you can, you know, fit in your backpack, but, you know, right. records on over 20 million Americans. Um, so you've got that. 
The concern, though, is something else that's playing out where it's government-linked, but the targeting is not of stealing secrets, but it's going after critical infrastructure and establishing beachheads. So, for example, a group of um, critical infrastructure companies, uh, they at least 23 of them were breached, uh, they, were, they were hacked, and no secrets were stolen. And it was basically seen as, you know, in, in, in military terms, it's called preparing the battlefield. Right. Um, it's laying the groundwork. If you ever needed to drop the hammer, you had a beachhead to do so. And do we, you said nothing was taken. Do we know if anything was left by the hackers? I mean, that's, that, that to me would be the first question is... Well, now you get into what's left versus um, if I can open the door, I've, I've proven that I've got right. it. So that's what's playing out. Right. Sorry to be cagey, but... No, no, no. Absolutely. I, I completely understand. I mean, you look at... There's been at least an attempt by the government to reorganize itself to take on the cyber threat with U.S. Cyber Command, with the CIA now for the first time in decades, changing its structure to add essentially a directorate focused on cyber. Is this enough? Is this a first step? Is this at least moving in the right direction? So we've made some very good steps. Um, and so, you know, whether it's, it's, as you've noted, the creation of Cyber Command, where, you know, it's gone from idea to you have literally thousands of people. They're working hand-in-hand at Fort Meade with the NSA. Um, I think the next stage of this is going to be, on that part, is um, uh, maturing the relationship. It's, it's a little bit odd to still have the head of the NSA and the head of Cyber Command be physically the same person. Um, it's uh, a lot like if you had the, um, they're, they're related, but they're different organizations. Right. You know, it'd be, you know, in, in the intelligence community, it'd be the equivalent of having the head of Pacific Command on the military side and the CIA be the same person. Right. Um, there's links, but at some point you've got to move them separate or you know, make a sports parallel. It'd be like having the coach of the New York Giants and the general manager of the Knicks right. be the same. They, they're, they're, they're related, they're sports, but they're different sports. Right. Um, so that's, that's one of the next stages of this. Another example of um, where we need to uh, go next is to bring in more civilian talent. There is um, a limit to essentially how many people you can bring into government and also, you know, who's going to be willing to take these jobs or be qualified for them. Um, and when I say qualified, it's not just technical. Qualified. It's things like getting a security clearance, um, meeting, you know, uh, physical qualifications to join the military, to be in cyber command or in the National Guard. Um, people's willingness to do so. They might want to volunteer to help the nation, but they might not want to be um, in a situation like if they join the military or the National Guard, they say, yeah, you're in and there's an earthquake in Haiti. Right. And you, you may have been a cyber warrior, but you've got to go help that too. So um, I'm a big fan of how Estonia has approached okay. it. Estonia was one of the first state victims of a major cyber attack a couple years ago. They got hit hard by Russia. And so since then, they've really developed a, a, a good response model. And one of the things they have is this thing called the Cyber Defense League. And the way to think about it is um, it's like a uh, militia or a little bit like our um, civil air patrol. Okay. So it's for people who are their security cleared, um, they're civilians, but they're volunteers, and they gather. So in the Civil Air Patrol, you, you're interested in aviation. You gather and you learn more about aviation, but you're also on call to do everything from respond to emergencies to help with training exercises. That's the same thing we need in the cyber realm. 
So let me let me ask you just a simple question about future technology before we get into Ghost Fleet. Um, you, you could spend five minutes on Google and you Google the Chinese pterodactyl drone, and if you want to put it side by side with the Predator, you would be probably surprised to see it's almost a bolt for bolt comparison. And the Chinese—it's just pure coincidence. Pure coincidence, and, 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 and also that the J twenty looks a whole lot like the F twenty two and the F thirty five. The F thirty five and J thirty one—it's like a doppelganger. Right. I, I actually, in speeches, show pictures of the of both of them, and I kind of confuse the audience by going, "This is the same plane, just one's painted black, and it has a red star on it. Why is this?" And you know, and the reason is this—it's this—it goes back to the hacking. Um, we've documented that the F thirty five program, its design. Uh, was breached on at least three separate occasions. So the challenge here is how do you win an arms race when you're paying for the research and development for the other side? And that's not even to get in. That's the software side of this. The other challenge is um, the hardware. Uh, Over 70% of the microchips in that plane and many other military and intelligence community systems are designed and made in China. So for the sci-fi it's just fans, the heart of Ghost Fleet. Yeah, but it, but it's a real-world problem, and and that you know the science fiction parallel here is um, the opening scene of Battlestar Galactica, right. where again you're not stealing secrets, you're dropping the hammer, you're maybe turning things off, right. kill switch, right. So it's a great segue into Ghost Fleet, uh, and I will join dozens of others, including yourself, to point out that when I read this the first time, now it's a couple times, Red Storm Rising was just flowing off the... I mean, it's a, for those of you that don't know what this is, Red Storm Rising was a book by Tom Clancy, came out in the mid-'80s, and most people of my generation who liked the military, cared about the military, just devoured Red Storm Rising. It's this vision of a future war, and so Ghost Fleet really kind of falls in that same genre of imagining, what, 15, 20, 30 years from now, maybe not that much, of a war between the United States and China and Russia, tangentially to a degree. Um, So let me ask you this. You've been a prolific and very successful nonfiction writer. Why fiction? It's a couple of things. Um, One was that actually that experience of of reading books like um, Red Storm Rising uh, or Hackett's The Third World War, Winds of War, World War Z or Game of Thrones. These were all books that that, um, inspired us. And uh, the writer at Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, actually had this saying. He said, all writers are readers first. And so they want to write the kind of books Mm -hmm. they like to read. So that was it was one to, to scratch an itch. Um, and we, the, the community had gotten away from these kind of books looking at the what if of an actual war. Um, like in the discussions of you know normal national security, everything was Middle East focused, everything was terrorism. And um, I was looking around and both the real world trends, we have you know an arms race happening with China right now, we've got tensions with Russia that are at their highest levels since the 1980s when Clancy wrote that. Um, so I wanted to take go back into that space and, and wrestle with a conflict where um, it's not a discretionary war. It's it's the kind of highest stakes possible conflict, a World War III. Um, and it's because of the thinkability of this, the risk factor of this. You know, it was unthinkable for the last 10, 15 years, 
and now, scarily enough, it's thinkable once more. Now, to go the fiction route, a couple of the reasons. Um, one, you, you can dial the timeline forward and, and be um, more interesting, more persuasive in doing the what-ifs in a fiction route rather than trying to do a non-fiction on, this is what I think. You can instead drop people into the multiple right. different characters. So this is what it would be like for uh, a fighter pilot, a ship captain, a general, a civilian, a spy. Um, this is what their experience would be like. And, and you know, one of the structures of the book that's different is rather than following one character, we come at it from all these different characters' um, uh, points of view. Right. Um, but going back to, you know, I could never escape my nonfiction hat. Each one of those characters is drawn from meetings with their real-world equivalents. Well, well, one of the most fascinating things about this is a fiction book it has endnotes. It's got sources. I mean, yeah. that, that's to me, as a historian, as a, someone that that eats up footnotes and endnotes, that was beautiful to me to kind of say, "Well, this is so science fiction," and flip and go, "Oh, never mind." You know, like here's a Wired or a Popular Mechanics or an article that directly talks about that same thing. And the idea was um, one to, to situate in the real world. So it's, it's this new kind of beast. It's a you know Tom Clancy style novel, but 400 endnotes. Um, that allows people, as you're, if, you, if people who want to learn more about whatever the the thing in it is, um, every single tech, our rule was every single technology, every single trend, even sometimes some of the things that the characters say are drawn from the real world. So whenever you see a thing or a place, you can then go to the the endnote, or if you got the ebook version, the rollover, and go, here's the real world version of it. Wow, that sounds crazy sci-fi. No, that's that's where it's being worked on today or where it already exists. The other part of it, and I think a little bit appropriate to this podcast topic, um, it's a way of uh, defending against accusations that we reveal classified information. Right. Nope, nope. here's yeah. the source. Right. Um, and, and, you know, again, that's maybe on the U.S. side. Uh, so, you know, it's led to some really strange experiences like um, I briefed the book at a intelligence um, agency headquarters and, of course, one of the opening scenes of the book is how that building can be hacked. Right. And so there's this irony of explaining to them how my novel uh, will explain how your building here will be hacked. They fire other gardeners after they <laughs> read the book. So. Don't give it away. Yeah. <laughs> but then you, know, then you have the other side of it is the things you're pulling from, um, you know, uh, China or Russia, and a lot of that's open source right. intelligence gathering in a way that you couldn't do, you know, back in the day. So, for example, you can... Um, figure out what, what uh, aircraft will equip the next Chinese aircraft carrier. The way we were able to go about it you know, wasn't through um, you know, breaking in or stealing secrets the way you would have done back in the day or you know, watching the, the, the Mayday Parade and seeing the, the bombers fly overhead and taking long-range photos like they would have done back at you know, uh, Moscow Embassy in the 1950s. For us, it was... Um, selfies that Chinese citizens took in a harbor <laughs> with their aircraft carrier under construction in the distance, right. then you can marry that up with Google Earth photos and use those to figure out the dimensions of the aircraft carrier, the size of the elevators on it, which then allows you to figure out what kind of planes will equip it 10 years from now. Right. And I do want to direct our listeners to the popular science, whether it's a website or the actual magazine, because your article's there. Uh, are very informative and fascinating. Um, you, you referenced already the idea that uh, this t- 
type of book has lost favor in the United States to a bit, looking at future wars, especially great power wars. Um, and, I, and I spent some time in Moscow, and I asked several people my age, just wondering, even some of the older crowd, if they had anything equivalent to a red storm rising or something like Red Dawn, right, where there's an invasion of the U.S. And, and no one could really put their finger on any kind of direct analogy. But you've talked about that in China today, there are hundreds of works of fiction that envision a future war with the United States. Absolutely. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost an entire genre there. And um, what's interesting about it is some of the most popular ones are written by Chinese military officers. Uh, and that, that raises some really interesting questions. Another way of putting it is there's a little bit more um, openness there and uh, talking about the risks of a conflict um, between states, be it uh, China versus a U.S. ally like Japan that it brings it in, or a U.S.-China war, um, than sometimes there is here. Uh, so, you know, hell, the, the um, Chinese regime's uh, newspaper, so it's a newspaper, but it's really a regime mouthpiece, right. um, has said that a US, the quote is, the exact quote is, a U.S.-China war is inevitable, end quote. Now, I think that's um, actually posturing. Um, it's posturing for our audience. And it was posturing. Yeah, it was basically sort of saying if the U.S. doesn't change what it's doing in the Pacific, then a war will happen. It's aiming at that. It's aiming at their own audience. But, again, there's been some interesting polling in China. Um, 74% of Chinese think their military would beat the U.S. now. Um, now, bottom line, I personally don't think a war between the U.S. and China is inevitable. I think it's a risk in the way that it wasn't a risk 10 years ago, and 10 years from now will be even more of a risk, particularly as China's power gains, as they become more confident, also more nationalist. And you know, the danger here is, if you look back at the last century, you know, we had two world wars that actually happened. One was a set of deliberate choices. The other was basically a crisis that spun out of control. Right. And then we had this fear of a third one that you know shaped the Cold War, and fortunately never happened. But we now know we were pretty lucky. Right. So if we're looking towards the future, um, you know, again, a conflict could happen out of a, a crisis that spins out of control. Some of the things we've seen recently have been, you know, um, ships scraping paint over reefs that well, the came South China from, Sea, yeah, just, to, yeah, to um, you know, planes being. Uh, shot down that stray over a border. We right. saw that in Turkey recently. We've had you know a lot of um, uh, Russian uh, visits, so to speak, to NATO borders, right. UK, even California. You know, accidents can happen and bad things can happen from those. Or you have the deliberate set of choices to reorder geopolitics, maybe when um, the power differentials are, are different. So I, I, it, it's difficult to talk about a, a fiction book because you don't want to give away plot points. Um, but I was interested to see that one of the uh, the main character, the inanimate main character of the book, the Zumwalt class destroyer, is now finally going to get its sea trials after however many long uh, years. And if you don't know anything about this, Google it. It's got this tumble home hull. Is that the right word for yeah. it? It looks like a ship turned inside out. Yeah, uh, and it really is kind of the. The, 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 again, the, the centerpiece of the fight. Um, why that? Just in a basic sense, why the zone wall? I, I'm fascinated with it as well. But like, I want to see what, what you're saying. There's a couple. One is, you know, it, it, 
it, it is science fiction come true, and not just the the design of it. I mean, it looks unlike any. It's a there's no way to put it. It's it's a stealth battleship. Yeah. Um, its design looks different. Uh, to you know, what you can't see in it is fundamentally different. It's powered by four million lines of Linux code. That means the ship um, previously would have uh, required a crew of about twelve hundred personnel. It's going to have a crew of one hundred forty because so much is roboticized and run by AI within it. It also it will be equipped with this revolutionary new technology called an electromagnetic railgun, which is the kind of stuff again was in right. science fiction, and yet it's it's becoming uh, it's real. They're testing it down in Dahlgren, where it doesn't use gunpowder to sling out a shell; it uses electromagnetism, which then gives it a range equivalent to a cruise missile. It's going to be able to fire a shell over a hundred miles. So it's all of these things come together. But to go back to where we were before. Because you're also going to have things like electronic warfare, cyber warfare, space warfare, knocking down the satellites, right. knocking down GPS. The battles in the future, as, as one Marine put it to me, will be like a pre-digital age. And by that, you know, you may have this stealthy battleship, you may have drones, or you may have, uh, you know, whatever. You're going to struggle, though, to first find the enemy and maybe even you won't know where you are so you know i think what the naval academy has changed in its training recently is a good illustration of where we're headed where this year at the naval academy they created a um cybersecurity major so it's going to be the pipeline for the navy cyber warriors of the future they're going to go into the 10th fleet and the 10th fleet to you know for the history buffs that was what they did, the, the signals intelligence back in the World War II that you know, helped um, break all the codes right. and most importantly helped hunt down the submarines and you know, arguably helped win the war. So they've reactivated 10th Fleet and said, ah, but you're now the cyber one. Right. So Na- Navy's created a major for that. But they've also said, hey, all you other midshipmen, you've got to relearn celestial navigation so that you can figure out how to navigate when all the technology craps out. Well, I mean, I think our, our listeners can understand the idea of, of, of uh, you know, being dependent on GPS and, you know, only knowing, not even knowing how to do directions anymore without GPS. So he is P.W. Singer. He is the author of Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. Dr. Singer, thank you for taking the time to join us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.